0: Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. Oh man, I'm so excited. I've been like excited about this message all week. Last week, we talked about what does it mean when God speaks to us and says, give me your heart. And We talked about the, the verse, we'll read it again here in a minute, Ezekiel 36, where God says that he exchanges our heart of stone for a heart of flesh, a heart that's rocky and a heart that is unmoving and jaded and numb and calloused. And he puts into us a heart after his own heart, one that's flexible and soft and beats with the rhythm of his own. And so last week we talked about what does it mean that when we give God our stony heart, and we we talked about how that means that we vacate the idols and we vacate the the need for self out of us, out of the temple of our lives, so that God can fill us, right? We give over something that is stony and dry and empty and dead. And this week we're going to Talk about what does it mean when we say, Lord, now give me your heart. Give me that heart of flesh, that heart of spirit. Pour into me yourself so that we live and breathe and see the way you do. There was a story I heard about a woman's conference. And afterwards, the women retreated to their, their hotel rooms and they were praying for each other. And as they're exchanging prayer requests, a woman is just weeping uncontrollably. And her prayer request, as she speaks up and she says, please pray for me. I can't stop crying. I mean, not just here. I mean, at home. When anytime that I'm, I'm, I'm spending time with the Lord or I'm, I'm praying, I think of the people that don't know Jesus and I just can't stop crying. Constantly, I find myself in tears. Please pray for me that I can't stop crying. And the leader of the group said this, I can't pray for that. I need you to pray for me to start crying. You see, a heart after God's is one that breaks for the things that breaks his heart. A heart after God is one that is soft and loving to the people around us. And so often we think that being flexible or giving of ourselves completely or letting somebody else, just honoring somebody else more than ourselves is wrong. And yet God is pouring into us a heart that says, you need to be broken for the people that you see. You need to hurt for the people that hurt around you, the people that don't have the people that are pushed low, that are victimized. You need to hurt for them. You need to weep for the people that are persecuted around the world because I'm hurting for them. That's the heart of God. This woman was an example of a heart exchange. She was beginning to see people the way God sees them. So our scripture for tonight is the same as last week. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29. Let's read it together. God is talking to Israel And he's saying this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. That's what we talked about last week. Lord, I surrender my idols. I surrender myself. I surrender this dirty heart that is jaded by my selfishness and my sin. And he says, this is God talking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all uncleanness. Oh, so beautiful. Ah, so beautiful. He's gonna put a new heart in us. Remember Acts chapter two? When God sends his Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus promised whenever Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send a new spirit. And he's going to dwell in you. He's going to empower you. And in Acts 2, (laughs) this Holy Spirit came and it set the church on fire. Isaiah, no, Ezekiel, sorry. Ezekiel was talking about that 500 years before, that God's going to come and he's going to pour his spirit into his people Receiving God's heart means that the Holy Spirit lives in and through us, helping us to see the world with his eyes. And get this, we take on God's attributes. Genesis chapter 1, remember? God made man. He said, let us make man in our image. In the likeness of God, man was made. We're not made little gods, not demigods. But we are made like God with an understanding of what is right and wrong with a compassion for people, with a testimony of going out and taking the world. God has printed his, his fingerprint on us. In these attributes, he's hardwired into us. But so many times those attributes of God that he printed on us because of sin, they've been numbed, they've been dimmed, they've been buried, they've been erased by our rebellion and our sin. And they don't come naturally to us anymore. There has to be a, heart exchange for these things to come back into us. Galatians chapter five. Let's take a look at that for a minute. It's such a a pure, perfect picture. Galatians chapter five. Paul is talking, he says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you're not gonna fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh, now right here, this word right here, the flesh lusts against the spirit. Exchange that word with wars. It wars against the spirit. They're at enmity, they're fighting each other. For the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, they're evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. There's a lot of them envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, all right, so that was the flesh, right? Living through the flesh, that's the stony heart side. But those who live in the Spirit, those who have God's heart, the fruit of that Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are evident in people that have had a heart exchange. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified that flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk, act, operate in that Holy Spirit. We have this contrast. A living in the flesh, that stony heart, a living in the Spirit, That heart that is soft towards God, that is filled with the Holy Spirit. God's given us his self-revelation through scripture, through the work of Jesus, and through the person of Jesus. And so if we're going to look at what are the attributes of God, whenever we say, God, give me your heart, and he says, you got it, I'm going to pour my attributes, I'm going to pour who I am into you, the best place to look is Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says that Jesus is, is the image of an invisible God. Yep, God was transcendent. He was separated. He was other. And yet he sends and comes as Jesus so that we have something tangible. Someone that spoke words the way we understand words. Someone who walked actually in skin, who bled, who lived in the same world, breathing the same air that we breathe so that he is the image of the invisible God. God. So if we're going to look and say, what are the attributes of God? A great place to start is, what are the attributes of Jesus? You got it, Gavin. So what does it mean to have God's heart? It means that we become more like Jesus. And there's tons of attributes of God. We're going to spend all of eternity getting to know God more. So narrowing it down was hard. But I wanted to narrow it down to what I think are some of the major attributes that we are called to live through as his Holy Spirit works in us. Some of the things that I could have mentioned were that God absolutely hates deception and lies. In Proverbs, he says seven things God hates and he names lying twice. He hates deception. He is pleased by our faith. He's a creative God. He's patient. He seems to love music. The book of Psalms is evident to that. There's, there's also songs throughout the rest of the Bible that are written some of the attributes that I want to cover tonight are something that God hates and something that God loves. He hates evil and he loves people. And those are things that he is calling us, that his Holy Spirit is transforming in us to be like, that we love people and that we hate evil. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives this parable, and it's not a comfortable parable. He talks about a farmer and he goes out and he plants this great wheat, in the field. And he does everything right. And then in the middle of the night, some punk comes by and plants weeds all around his wheat seeds. And they start growing up together. And the servants come and they're like, what is going on? Should we try to go through and rip out all the, the weeds? And the farmer is wise. And he says, no, no, no. If we pull up the weeds, we may end up ripping up the good seed. So let them grow together. And whenever the seed is fully grown, then we can separate them. And then take those weeds, roll them up, and send them to the fire. And the disciples are all confused, and they go to Jesus later. And I'd like to read uh, Jesus' reaction whenever they ask him, Jesus, what did this mean? And I'm going to read it for you. I don't think I'll put it in the slides, but I think Jesus says it better than I'll ever be able to interpret. You're on it. Matthew 13, we're going to go to verse 36. Y'all ready for this? Then Jesus said to the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered them, He who sows good seed is the Son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked ones. So we have in the same field the righteous and the wicked. And they're growing up together. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They'll gather up of his kingdom all the things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, unrighteousness, evil, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I want to begin with God hates evil. It's sort of uncomfortable to talk about God actually hating something. Hate is such a strong word, right? We just have like this, this sometimes image of God that he's almost like this senile hippie. He just loves everything. He just loves everybody. You know, everything is good. You do what feels good to you, and it's all going to work out in the end. That is a messed up, backwards image of a holy, all powerful God. Who is completely righteous, completely pure, and he stands in direct opposition and a complete enemy against everything that is evil, everything that would touch that purity, everything that is sin or rebellion. Romans 1 16 through 18 says this I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then also for the Greek, which you can hear there is for Israel and then also for the Christian. For those who aren't necessarily Jewish. Anybody Jewish in here? Good. We're all under that category. Are you Jewish? Nice. Mazel tov. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is against all unrighteousness. We love gray in society. Because as long as we can rationalize it, then it's okay, right? Maybe that's what's up with the rise of antiheroes, right? As long as it's rational, as long as they have good reason, then revenge and violence and everything is totally acceptable. We love living in the gray areas. As, as long as it's not really cheating, I can sort of get away with this in my homework. But, but you don't understand... Um, We love gray area. We're comfortable in grays. As long as the end justifies the means, as long as we can explain it away, your mom probably accuses you of this. Our flesh finds comfort in some sort of yin yang of ethics. Oh, yeah, everything that's good, yeah, it does have a little evil. But everything that's evil has a little good in it, too. We enjoy a fluid morality. What's right for you may not be what's right for me, vice versa. Everything is subjective. There's not really a hard truth. And the only sin that our society recognizes is telling somebody else that they're wrong. Right? However, our God sees with a greater clarity. He lives in what is black and what is white. What is of him and what is against him. There is no middle ground for him. All sin separates what is holy and pure from what is everything else. There's not a need for a scale, a gray scale, a sliding rule for God. And as we grow in the Spirit, and God's heart begins to chisel away our old nature, we become more sensitive to sin. We become repellent to what is evil and what is sin. And we start growing to hate it. You see, whenever we first give our lives to the Lord, we're really calloused still. Honestly, maybe some of us Christians are still calloused and we're totally comfortable. But as we grow in receiving the heart of God, sin begins to pinch us just a little bit harder. Being around it, hearing it, just it, it becomes so much clearer as the heart of God grows in us. Rejecting temptation starts becoming easier because we see it for what it is. Temptation isn't just something fun that we might be able to get away with if we can explain it. Temptation becomes something that is so other who we are because we're now living in the spirit. Imagine if you just came home from a work project. Maybe it was painting or or mowing lawns or, or whatever, right? And you're in your play clothes, your work clothes, whatever you want to call them, and as you're walking into your front door, you, you trail off the sidewalk, and you trip, and you fall on the grass, and you're like, oh, and you go back to your business. Now, imagine you're on your way out to prom, guys, and you're wearing a white tuxedo. Girls, maybe you're on your way, ooh, you're on your way to the wedding altar, and you're in your gown, and now what if you had that exact same experience where you trip into the grass? All of a sudden, you're like, ah, no, grass, dirt, what is this? It is amazing that as God flows through us and chisels away that old callous stone heart, that as we begin to experience what holiness is, all of a sudden, what we used to just shrug off now seems so Repellent and ugly because we're starting to grow in the heart of God. God hates evil, it's what separates him from the ones he loves, it's what rises up against the very glory of the greatest, of the highest. And we, as God's kids, As his people, we begin to grow in hating what is evil too. Something, whenever you hear about human trafficking, all of a sudden it stabs you in the heart like it never did before. When you see someone at school getting picked on, it just rips your guts out from inside and it motivates you to action. Because whenever God saw evil, it motivated him to action. And he didn't stay in heaven where it was comfortable, where he reigned on high. But it says that he subjected himself, that he became flesh and walked among us so that we, because of his love, could know him again. We could be reconnected to the God of holiness, not through our own merit, but through the merit of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to point number two. God hates sin. God loves people. He loves you. When you get in the mirror, you remind yourself that you are loved by the smartest, wisest, greatest person on the planet who saw enough value in you to die for you, who saw enough value in who you would be that he created you. He loves you. He loves you to pieces. He hurts. He just loves you so much. Matthew 20. Verses 29 through 33 tells a story about Jesus that I used to skim over fast. I'd heard this story before. It's just another miracle. And then someone brought something into my attention. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Do you' all have that image? They're going out of the gate of a big city, and there's two guys sitting by the side. What do you think they were doing? They're blind. They're just begging. They've got nothing. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. What did they do? They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want for me to do? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And you know the story. Jesus heals them. We walk among a group of people that see and hear differently than what God is doing inside of us. Jesus is walking in a crowd that two people that are blind and begging rebuke and tell them to shut up. And what does Jesus do? It says he stopped and he went to them. We are so good about going about our days, and Jesus is busy stopping. I wonder how many times we have our our quiet time, our devotion in the morning, and we're like, yeah, God, let's do this thing. Let's go today. And then we have one of those encounters, and God is stopping, and we're like, yeah, on to the day. But his heart was back there. Back there in the locker room, back there at home, back there on the side of the road. That's where his heart was, but we're off doing our thing. You see, if we're going to look at the attributes of God, God is willing to stop and go to the people that are in need. He's willing to go and love. He touched the people that were lepers, the people that are diseased and infectious, and Jesus puts his hands on them. And you know what? Jesus didn't get leprosy. They got better. The infection worked the other way around. That's love. That's God's love. And that's, that's the kind of love that's now in you and me, and it's supposed to be pouring out of us. It's supposed to be a fruit that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Yeah. And then Jesus takes it even further and says, Matthew 5, love your enemies. And then he modeled it, Luke 23, 34. He's hanging on a cross, looking at his own murderers and says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. When we have God's heart inside of us, we start loving bigger than just us. We start loving bigger than ourselves, bigger than what we can see, bigger than our limited selfish capacity because our self begins to fade away. We start esteeming others higher than ourselves. Because they have some right to it? No. Because we walk in humility and love and we elevate others over ourselves We start becoming sacrificial. Our hearts begin breaking for what breaks his. It's a removal of our calloused heart, of apathy. And God replaces it with a heart of passion and a heart of action because God did not sit quietly by. Jesus stopped and he came to us. That is the heart of God. Another story that I love is in John 8. And Jesus is preaching and a bunch of guys, smart guys, spiritual guys, religious guys, drag a woman from a bed where she was committing adultery, and they throw her in the road in front of them. I want to know where the guy was who was committing this adultery. But if they were so intent on catching Jesus that they could have cared less about actually doing what was right, and they were much more intent on trying to trap Jesus and to some sort of catch-22, and Jesus always blows through their tests. And so they throw this woman at his feet, and she's probably not dressed. She's probably embarrassed and shamed and scared and curled up in a ball, and all of them, oh, I brought a rock, and all of them are gathering rocks to stone her with. And I can tell you, if I dropped this rock from this three feet and hit myself in the foot, I would have a bad day. This is a, a jagged, rough, unforgiving rock. It's a hard rock. Can you imagine someone hurling this at your body? Can you imagine how it would rip your skin, how it would break your bones? Can you imagine trying to breathe after being hit with this? It would hurt. It would do a lot of damage. And in those days, when they stoned someone, they took great pride in not hitting them in the head so that they would live longer. Why hit him in the head and knock him out or kill him? That ends all the fun early. They would try to aim for you somewhere else to drag out the suffering. And here she is in front of them and they say, Jesus, what should we do with this woman that we caught in adultery? We brought rocks. I love what Jesus does. I never caught this before either. Because later in the passage, it says that whenever they left, that that he was in the midst with her. As in, when they made this circle, and she was in the middle, and they're holding their rocks, Jesus was inside that circle with her the whole time. Did you ever think about that? Jesus was with her. They started throwing rocks. Jesus was going to have to either get out of the way or take it. What does Jesus do? What do we do with this woman, Jesus? And it's like he just ignores him, and he just bends over. And he, he was left-handed, and he starts writing in the sand. We don't know what he was writing, but you know what he was doing? All of their anger, all of their venom was now turned from her onto him. He soaked up all that anger and that focus. She was now not even being looked at anymore. They're looking at Jesus, who's just distracted them, and he's taken on their anger, their fury, and it's now on him as he writes in the dirt. And maybe out of the side of his mouth, he just goes... I wonder if one of you guys never sinned. You you can throw the first rock. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, probably because they were the wiser, began to peel off until Jesus and her were left alone. Where are your accusers? Who's left to accuse you? And she says, no one. That's profound too. Because Jesus' next statement is, and neither do I. There was no one accusing her. Not even Jesus himself was standing there trying to hold her feet to the fire. He was just loving. And then he says, maybe something that we should all take home too go and sin no more. Why? Because God hates sin, but he loves people. We love John 3.16, but we so quickly stop there. John 3.17 says that he did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Because he hates sin with a vehement wrath. But he loves people, that it hurts him to death, that he couldn't stand by, that he had to get down in the dirt with this woman, that he had to take the blame, that he had to go to the cross for her sins. he loves people. And you know what? It's really easy in your life to love the people that love you back. It's really easy in your life to love the people that are easy. But Jesus didn't come for the easy. He came for the impossible. None of us fit the bill of anything but impossible. We were all sinners. We all fell short of the glory of God. And we were all under the very just wrath of God. And so Jesus came for the impossible. I wonder if this week we'll be willing to start loving the impossible too. Because the Holy Spirit is chiseling out that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Just a couple days ago, I learned about an amazing structure I'd never heard of before. I'm sort of embarrassed. It's called, I'm going to butcher this name, the... Hagia Sophia? Someone correct me. Hagia Sophia? It's a cathedral that was built back in the 500s. And it stood for a thousand years as the biggest structure known to man. And also an engineering marvel that people looked at and were just stunned. For a thousand years, there was never a competition. Do we have that picture? Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. A thousand years. No one ever came close to it. It was built in 537 AD, and here's what's interesting about this building. The mortar, as in the stuff between the bricks, between the rocks, is one and a half times thicker than the bricks itself, so there's more mortar than there is bricks, and it was imported from an island out in the Mediterranean, and get this, over that thousand years to this day, the mortar has never completely set If you poured your driveway, you give it a couple days, and it sets. It gets hard, and if it gets a crack, it's done, right? There's just a crack there. You're not going to fix it unless you cut it out and you pour more cement. But after, what is it, 1,500 years now, the mortar has never completely set. And you know what that does? Because in Turkey, they have regular earthquakes. And you'll get all sorts of cracks in that mortar. And with the first rain, that mortar is self-healing, and those cracks disappear. Over and over and over again, this building is a self-healing building. When we look at the body of Christ, each one of us are called to be bricks that he is building his kingdom with, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone on which we all stand. But you know the mortar that holds us together is love. It's the mortar that's self-healing, that through offenses and through frustrations and anger and divisions, that God uses love and the forgiveness that comes with it over and over and over again so that his unconditional love through his heart and his people will always stand. And it'll stand through this life and through eternity. And that is the love That Jesus displays, that is the love of a heart of God that hates sin and loves people that he is pouring into us. That we also begin to hate what is unrighteous and hate the things that drags God's people down and drags down our friends and family that aren't saved. And we see them and we start hurting and we're broken. And we start loving people and we start pursuing the impossible. That is the God we serve. So here's my challenge for this week. During your time with the Lord, during your God times, your date with God, whatever you want to call it, this week, because I am I am expecting that you're doing that, spend some time meditating on other characteristics of God. Start thinking through, even if it's just on the bus ride, Maybe it says you're laying in bed at night. Start thinking through what do you know about God, and start just thinking about His characteristics. I love the idea that God's creative. To me, I can think about that all day, like the duck-billed platypus. That's so cool. I love science. Science and 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 spirituality never they never diverge. Science is only an explanation of how creative God is. So begin thinking through, what are some other characteristics of God? I gave you two. There are are endless numbers of who God is, of his attributes, those things that he can fill us with, that he will fill us with. And here's my second challenge. Start praying that God will give you his heart. Let's make that a part of our prayer every day. Lord, give me your heart. I'm done with this old one. It hasn't served me very well. I want yours. Heavenly Father, We love you. Lord, give us your heart. Please, teach us how to hate unrighteousness so that temptation is weaker and weaker. Teach us to love what is good and just and truthful. Teach us to love people. Forgive us for our sin. Thank you for dying so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I pray that every man and woman within the sound of my voice will spend time with you this week and encounter a real and living God that loves them, that wants to make them pure and holy, and does make them pure and holy. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for an amazing night to worship you. Bless all of our brothers and sisters that are on vacation. Bless our brothers and sisters that are out on the missions trip. Lord, I pray you bring them home safe. Let exactly who you want to go to camp, go to camp. In Jesus' name, amen.